If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn to Genesis chapter 1? Um, If you don't have a Bible, you should see one in the pew in front of you. And let me say this, if you don't own a Bible at home, um, please take that one home as our gift to you. Um, We are just super glad that you would be here and explore Jesus with us. Um, We also have um, a a non-Bible gift we'd like to give you if you fill out that Connect card. So there's my plug for that. I've done my due diligence. Fill that out. Take that to the info desk. We'd love to meet you. Um, If you're just joining us, uh, we are in week three through this series that we have called uh, In the Beginning. And what we're doing in this series is we're looking at the opening pages of the Bible, um, which really give us our collective origin story. Um, We said on week one that there's a lot of origin stories in our world right now that are being offered to us today. Um, And I'm not talking about like Batman Begins or the Star Wars prequels or other kind of origin stories for superheroes. Uh, I'm talking about stories that would speak to how you and I got here, why we exist, what our purpose is, what's gone so terribly wrong in the world, and how it can be made right again. Uh, We said these are important questions, and what we've seen over the last couple of weeks is that the Bible offers a unique creation story that answers these questions in a way that's unique not only from Israel's neighbors three and a half thousand years ago, but it answers these questions in a way that is unique from what you and I are hearing in our world today. Uh, And we said that um, we believe that because this story is not only true, but really because it's true, that this story has the power to lead us deeper into the life that we all long for. And if that sounds like a bold statement to you, I'll just double down today. I'm feeling bold today. Um, Today, we're going to be looking at a doctrine um, that has done more good for human flourishing than any other philosophy or idea in the history of the world. Um, Now, if that sounds bold to you, um, I'll say this. My hope is by the end of today, you will not only be convinced that historically that is true, but that you and I might enter into this story and experience afresh the life-giving truth that's here. Are you ready? All right. Genesis chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 26. says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was what? Very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. 
So if you were here with us last week, uh, we covered the whole chapter. That's why I asked you what it was, because we saw last week that there's a rhythm to this chapter, that every day ends with it being very good. This day ends particularly good. It's very good. And that's not the only rhythm. Every day begins like this. Uh, It begins with God saying, let there be. So day number one, let there be light. Day number two, let there be a a separation between the waters above and the waters below. Day number three, let dry land appear and pop out from the islands. Day number four, let there be uh, birds in the heavens. No, excuse me. Day number four, uh, let there be uh, sun, moon, and stars to govern the seasons. Day number five, let there be birds in the heaven and fish in the water. And then you get to day number six. And it starts off that way, let there be animals on the land. But then the narrative takes a hard turn. God moves from saying, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. It was good, it was good, it was good, to now saying, let us make mankind in our image. Now, um, there is a lot of debate about that word, us. Um, Some people look at this and they see this as a conversation amongst the Trinity, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit say, hey, I've got an idea. Here's what we're going to do. Other people look at this, and I'd include myself in this group, um, that see this as God who is Trinity, three persons, but he's speaking to his heavenly host. This council of um, angels and powerful supernatural beings we see him speaking to throughout the Old Testament. Um, and, and what I will say is there's a lot of debate and ink spilled over this, and I had a long section of the sermon to convince you of my position on that, but I'll say this, if you're curious, ask in the Q&A, because regardless of who the us is, that's not central to the point of this text. The central point of this text is not to introduce new creators. Um, so let me just say this, for those of you that are like wigged out that I said this might be God talking to a council of heavenly beings, like what, we were made by God and angels? Absolutely not. When you get to verse 27 and God actually makes humanity, all the verbs are singular. God makes mankind in his image. So however you read the us, the point is not to get lost in the argument of what's going on there. The point is us is in the narrative to break the rhythm to dial it up to the next level, that by um, giving us this peek into this conversation in heaven, what Moses is doing is he's dialing the narrative up to a new height. Let there be, let there be, let there be. I think God had this conversation. Everything comes to a new height, and at the pinnacle of his creative work, God does what? He creates mankind in his image. And you might say, your translation might say man, but if you keep reading, it says male and female. So what that's talking about is mankind, which is why some translations will say humanity, because this is how we talk now. Either way, it's a good translation as long as you understand what's going on. He's not just talking to the dudes in the room and leaving all the women out. Sorry, women. This is saying God made all humans in his image. And that's the big doctrine we're looking at today, that every human being has been made in the image of God. And, and this is a massive, do- it's so big, we're not going to be able to cover it all in one sermon. Um, last week I said, I hope you brought a snack. Um, I'm not going to make you bring a snack today to be here like six hours and try to go through the whole thing, because this is so big, we're going to take several weeks to unpack what it means to be humid in the Genesis story. Like, for example, I just mentioned it. Uh, this says that to be created in the image of God means to be made male and female. So this involves gender. I don't know if you know this, our world's talking a lot about gender right now. 
um, that is a huge piece of the conversation. According to the Bible, your gender, it's not incidental to who you are. It's an important part of who you are and how you live in the world. And so this is not a throwaway line. Genesis is going to continue to go into this, but we won't get there for a couple of weeks. So, so stay tuned if you're intrigued on that. Um, and if you're not intrigued, two weeks, we're going to be talking about what it means to be made specifically male and female. But today what we're going to be doing is we're just going to tackle the big idea of what the image of God is. What's it mean that we're made in the image of God? Or some of you might have grown up around church and heard to be made in the Imago Dei, which is just Latin for in the image of God. Sometimes in church we like to use big words and feel really proud of ourselves for knowing the big words. So however you want to do it, Imago Dei, or if you like plain English, in the image of God, that's what we're going to be unpacking today. And we're going to look at two things. We're going to look at what the image is, and then how that gives us dignity and purpose. So for the note-taking types, we're going to talk about what the image is and how this gives us dignity and purpose. So let's start with what does it mean to be made in the image of God? Um, That language might sound strange to you. Um, Again, unless you grew up in church and kind of grew up hearing this, that's not really how we talk today. Um, But in the ancient world, this was common language they used all of the time in religious and non-religious settings. They wouldn't have even really had that distinction. But this was just common, ordinary, everyday speak, which is why this language of image, or it's also translated idol throughout the Bible, will show up again and again and again throughout the pages of the Old and the New Testament. So let um, let me unpack this because it is actually important. Um, In the ancient world, here's where the language came from. In the ancient world, kings uh, and rulers would place statues of themselves throughout their territory. Um, now, Now think about why they might do this. They didn't have the internet. They did not have television. They didn't even have, some of you are like, I remember before the internet. Okay, they didn't have radio. Um... And so if, if a king wanted the people in his territory to know what their leader was like, to know um, what their ruler is like, to know um, his benevolence, his goodness, his strength, whatever you wanted your empire to be marked by, if you wanted the people in your territory to remember um, whose world they're living in, you would place a statue, that same word is used here, image, you would place a statue or an image of yourself throughout your territory so that the people in your territory would look at that statue and go, oh, that's what our king is like. That's what our ruler is like. Oh, we're living in his world. This is so great. I get to live in his world. That's the background behind this language here. And so what this is saying is that you and I are like living statues of God in the world. That while the whole cosmos is a temple where God is to be known and enjoyed and all of life is to spill over into glad worship of him, you and I are unique in the creative order in that we are the only thing that are described as the images of the creator. We are the only thing in all of creation that is described as, you want to know what the creator is like? Look right there. That's the statue, that's the icon, that's the image of the creator. That's what you and I have been placed here to do. We are like um, the idols, that's the same word, um, that ancient people would put in their temples to say, here's what our God is like. Um, You know, and this is why, by the way, God tells Israel in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, he says, don't make any carved images of me. The reason God tells them that is because he already has made images of himself in the world, you and me. 
Now, this made Israel different from every other religion in the world. Every other religion, you'd walk into the temple, you would see a carved image and a statue of the divine being. But in the temple in Israel, you'd walk in and there's no carved images. There's just people there because we are the images of the invisible God. We are his icons, his statues, his images that are meant to show the world what he is like. Um, This is a profound, revolutionary idea. Like, I want you to think about that. In a world full of dolphins and dogs and rainbows and sunshine and all of these beautiful things, what the scriptures say is that you and I have uniquely been placed here to show the whole cosmos what our God is like. That weight has been put on nothing in creation besides you and me. And this is what makes us different from the animals. Um, Like, I I hope you can get this by now that I really like animals, Um, particularly dogs. Like, I am very pro-dog. I'm lobbying so hard right now to become a dog-owning family. Uh, But here, I will tell you this, uh, and I'll just prophesy for a moment. When we get that dog, um, you know, he's going to be, he's going to bring a lot of joy to that home. And, and I say he because I live with four women. Like, even the girls are like, Dad, we need a boy dog. We need to even this out somehow. Um, so when we get that dog, he will bring a lot of joy to our home. Um, but, but I'll tell you this. That dog will not sit around at night and dream about all the unique aspects of the girls' personalities Um, That dog will not just sit and think about, okay, what are all the things that I can do to sow into that, to to bring out the fullness of who they have been created to be? What are the things that I could do to bring out more of their unique personality and make them feel safe in this space? Some of you are like, my dog does that. No, your dog doesn't. You watch way too much television. Your dog is lovely, your dog brings joy, and your dog brings life, but your dog ain't planning for your college and your future. Um, This is why, by the way, so this dog, he'll he'll bring a lot of joy to the home. I guarantee you, he's not going to gather up all the neighborhood dogs and say, fellas, I'm really concerned about the climate. It's almost a degree warmer than when we were puppies. And I'm just so concerned what that means for my grand puppies. Like, a dog's not going to do that, but humans will. Why is that? Because they are dogs, they are awesome, but they have not been made in the image and likeness of our Creator. They have not been put here to show the world what our Creator is like. That weight has been put on you and I alone in the entire created order. And I want to be really clear as I say this, because um, sometimes the way the image of God is taught is, um, well, maybe the image of God is like one or two things that we can do. So maybe it's this idea of being able to think or being a rational person. Um, But hopefully you see how that doesn't work, because if you have teenagers, it's like, do they just lose the image of God for a while? Like, that's not what the Bible's saying. Some people have said like, oh, well, maybe it means to have emotions, but some of you are married to someone that you would call unhuman if that's the case. Um, You can't ground the image of God in any one particular faculty that we have as humans. According to the Bible, um, the image of God, it's not so much something that we possess, it's something that we are. We are the images of God in this world. And because of that, there are so many things that make us uniquely different from the animals. But all those things are derivative from what God has made us to be. And so we may, even though we may possess those in varying uh, values and degrees, we are all images of the living God. 
And this is what gives inherent dignity, value, and worth to every human life. So we've got to reject any definition that would ground it in any one particular thing that humans do. We've got to see it as a whole package thing. That to be an embodied human in this world is to be a physical, living representation of what the invisible God in heaven is like. To show the created order, here is what our creator is like. Now, that means the fact that you and I have been created in God's image gives us inherent dignity. I said we talk about dignity and purpose. So we talked about what the image of God is. It's not something we have. It's something we are. And out of that comes all this unique stuff. That idea that we are living statues, living, breathing monuments to who the creator is, to show the world what he is like, that idea leads to dignity and purpose. Number one, um, it means that all of human life is sacred. Um, This is why, by the way, if um, Pastor Phil goes out this weekend hunting um, and he comes into the office on Monday with like some fresh sliced turkey sandwiches, no one's going to lose their mind over that. Now, now some of you might because we live in California and we're a unique breed here. But by and large, throughout human history, they would call that getting dinner or getting lunch. But if he goes out and pops another human, like I I love Pastor Phil. We're looking for a new worship pastor, right? Like, there is a value and a dignity to human life that surpasses everything else in the created order. This is why we don't freak out over, you know, um, like when a lion devours a gazelle. Like, National Geographic doesn't call the police. They film it. There's a difference in the value of human life and anything else in the cosmos. And in fact, it is on this basis of our status as image bearers that the Bible forbids murder in Genesis 9 verse 6. And it is on this basis of all humans having dignity by, not by anything we do, but by virtue of what we are, that the Bible will even forbid speaking harshly about another human in James chapter 3 verse 9. You see how expansive that is? From murder to gossip and slander and just being plain old mean. The image of God relates to all of it. And and I hope you can see the logic here, because according to the scriptures, anytime you attack another human, you are ultimately ultimately causing an affront to the God that they were put here to image and to make known in the world. So when you criticize and tear down and critique another person, what you're saying is, hey, you know the God you're here to image? Yeah, not so much. And the Bible takes that pretty seriously. See, this relates to all of life. Being in the image of God gives all human life this God-sized, this incredible dignity, value, and worth. Now hear me, it doesn't make you God. I've got to walk attention in this sermon where I want to make you feel all the value you're meant to feel from the image of God, but I can't let you feel too valuable to think that you're the center of the universe, otherwise we just downshift it into narcissism and go back to week one. That ends badly for everybody. The Bible has this tension here where all of human life is valuable, um, because it's made in the image of God. So, so here's the thing. As we lift God high, we lift humanity high. You try to lift humanity high without lifting God high, and you undermine the very foundation that gives you human dignity at all. And, and, and I say that um, because I know we live in a modern day where I think, by and large, our culture is... Um, intrigued by the idea of equal rights of humanity. Um, That's not the day Israel lived in. When Moses is writing this, people in the ancient world, they believed that their kings and their rulers were made in the image of God. 
right? So this is what gave them authority to rule. So Moses is writing this. The original audience would be shocked by this claim that all humans have inherent dignity, value, and worth being made in the image of their creator. Because when Moses writes this, everyone in the world believes, no, 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 only the kings are made in the image of God. This is why they get to tell us what to do, because they're on another level of value and importance than we are. See, in the ancient world, they believed that normal people were expendable, but kings, rulers, leaders, famous people, they had dignity, value, and worth that was driven from the gods. And into that space, Genesis comes on the scene and is like, no, you got it all backwards. There's one God, not all these different gods, and there are many image bearers, not just one in the world. You, you got your numbers all backwards. And, and this idea rocked the ancient world. It said it's not just the kings and the rulers who are in the image of God. And get this, it's not even just the men. Male and female, we've been created in the image of God. That puts men and women on an equal playing field as fully, inherently dignified and valued representations of God in the world. And that shocked that culture. That reframed everything for them. And it took them some time to work things out. But I will tell you this, that should shock our culture if we have ears to hear it as well. Because, see, we... um, Our culture, I think we like the idea of equality of all humans, and yet we apply it selectively. And and so here's what I mean by that. Um, You will see people that will champion racial equality and say that every human, regardless of skin color, where they're from, like that shouldn't determine their dignity and opportunity in life. And those same people will turn around and lose their minds anytime someone dares speak up for the unborn. Um, because I'm an equal opportunity offender, I will just say this flows both ways. So you, you could cut the tension in the room with a knife right now. Let me say it this way as well. There are people who champion the life, uh, the cause of life and the unborn, who will lose their minds the second you start talking about racial justice. Hmm? Wow, we're a diverse church. We're silent on both. I'd actually say praise God. That means we're a diverse bunch here. But see, here's the thing. Um, We apply this idea selectively because this is the bend of sin in us. That we don't really believe all people are created equal. We just believe the people that think like us or the people that we like or that we're particularly focused on. We apply this selectively. And I'm not saying anyone sets out to try to do it that way. What I'm saying is that's what's going on in practice. And what the Bible's saying here is you cannot apply this doctrine um, specifically to one group and not another. You cannot apply this doctrine selectively. This applies to all humans everywhere, or it doesn't apply to any humans at all. And this corrects and brings life to every culture the world has ever known. So we spent some time looking at three and a half thousand years ago in that culture and how they valued kings over people. And, and you could go to like the times of Jesus and say, look at how they valued men over women. You could be a snob and critique them throughout history. But again, I, I've kind of said, I think we do this as well today. Let's just look at the historical example that believing this doctrine holistically and across the board can have. When you believe that all of life is sacred because all humans have been made in the image of their creator, this has led uh, the people of God to do things like, in the first century, um, the very first Christians uh, stayed in the city when there's a plague that is just 
it, historians say it almost wiped out the Roman Empire in the second century. There's a plague that ravishes, and the Christians stayed in the city. When everyone else fled, they said, we can't leave. These people, they don't like us. They think that our ethics are all backwards and that we're sexually repressive, but we're going to be here to love and minister to them because regardless of what they believe, they've been made in the image of our Creator. The image of our Creator has come to redeem them. I'm getting ahead in the sermon, but there's a value there. And so the Christians stayed in the city and ministered to the sick and the dying often at the cost of their own lives when everyone else fled. And historians will look at that and they will credit that as a significant, depending on who you read, a significant factor in the explosion of Christianity in the empire. And and you can move forward into history. It was Christians motivated by the belief in the Imago Dei that fought for better working conditions and wages during the Industrial Revolution when humans, particularly children, were being treated as less than and existing to serve everybody else who's actually valuable out here but not you down there. It was Christians who said, no, the word of God says no. If they're not valuable, neither are you. We're all valuable and we need to do better. It was the belief in the image of God in all of humanity that led William Wilberforce and his friends to overthrow the slave trade in England. And I know the second I say that, you might say, well, what about America? Well, let's talk about America. A couple decades after William Wilberforce and his friends overthrew the slave trade in England, there was a Supreme Court case in this country called Dred Scott. I don't have it in my notes who he's writing against, but Dred Scott was a slave who, um, he sued the federal government for his freedom. And what the federal government decided was that he did not have standing to sue the federal government because he wasn't a whole person. Uh, It was wicked. It was evil. But it was not unanimous. And I want to read to you um, from the dissenting opinion from Supreme Court Justice John McClain so you can hear what motivated the tide turning in this country. Listen to this. He says, A slave is not mere chattel. He bears the impress of his maker, and he is destined to an eternal existence. Do you hear it in there? It's the image of God. He's saying the image of God makes us wicked and wrong, and how dare we tread upon image bearers of the living king. And within a decade, that argument would win out in our country. And while, again, if you know your history, like progress in that arena has been particularly slow and troublesome, but as progress has been slow, it was the belief in the Imago Dei that led Martin Luther King and his friends to fuel the civil rights movements of the 1960s. And, and on and on I could go throughout history. The point is this, that where, wherever you find a clash against injustice, you will always find the value that the Bible places on all human life being sacred and equal at the center of that and driving and empowering that fight. What this means is that as Christians... We are called to be socially active. Now, I don't know here how you hear that term. I spent like a long time this week saying, how can I write a phrase that um, won't trigger people or be tied to one political movement? I, I hope that's neutral enough. If it's not, let me just say this. If you're hearing some political, you're bringing it in here. Christians should be socially active. If we believe that all humans have been made in the image of God, then it ain't woke Christianity stand up and say no when image bearers are being treated cheaply. It's biblical Christianity. 
So the people of God have historically, based on this doctrine, prayed when we've seen injustice, we've rallied together, and we've gotten involved, and we've pushed back darkness and said, not on our watch, because this belief is page one of our scriptures. And if we don't believe this, what do we believe? All human life is sacred because it is made in the image of God. And you and I have been put here to pray and to get in the game and to fight back against injustice wherever it's seen. And and, and that brings us to our second point. So we talked about dignity and now purpose. Um, Look with me one more time at verse 28. It says, And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. So I want you to notice this. God doesn't just create humans in his image and say, Good luck, fellas, ladies. Um, God blesses them. Some of you, your vision of God is an angry man in the sky um, who is just out there just like waiting with the lightning bolt ready to crack anyone that's going to have some fun. Um, if, If that's where you're at, and again, you wouldn't say it that way, but kind of your view is God's trying to cramp my style. If that's how you feel, I want you to note page one of the Bible. That the God that we see here is a happy God who is singing creation into existence out of an overflow of the joy that the Father shares and loving the Son through the Holy Spirit, the three of them, that they just overflow onto the canvas of reality, creative goodness. And at the pinnacle of that creative goodness, this happy God blesses the humans. He says to us, be fruitful, multiply, have a great time, fill the earth, subdue it. He's a giving God. He's a happy God. He wants flourishing. He blesses the humans, and then he gives us our mission. He says, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over it. What we see here is that image bearing, it doesn't just give us dignity. It does do that. But image bearing also gives our life great purpose. That we have been created by God to reflect his nature in this world by ruling over this world in such a way that everything flourishes just like our happy, life-giving God created it to. That's what this is saying. God creates out of happiness, joy, and love. He creates humans, and he says, okay, here's what I want you to do. I want you to cause this whole cosmos to continue ringing out into this harmony, to continue flourishing, to continue um, being happy and overflowing and glad worship to me. I don't want this song to ever end. That's what God is saying. He's giving, our, he's giving us a purpose. Now, I know it's easy to look at that and go, well, why did he do that? If God just said, humans, you just sit on the sidelines and I'll keep it happy. You know, you could argue that, but um, I would say this. I think it says something about the nature and character of God, that though he could run the cosmos all by himself, he creates image bearers and says, I want relationship with you. I want to partner with you. I want to give you something through a partnership and through a relationship you can never have by me making you like a robot to be like a dog that's always happy. I want you to partner with me in being creative and thinking about how to fill this place with my love. I want you to, um, as you get to know how righteous and good I am, think about all the creative ways you could spread love and justice and mercy throughout the cosmos. This is God's desire for us. Um, There's a a pastor friend, or he's really kind of a mentor to a lot of us younger pastors in Converge, and 
Um, the way he would say it on this point is he would say, God made you and I to be architects of flourishing. That you and I were created to partner with God over making his world flourish. To fill the earth, to subdue it. To, that, that, you might hear that term because we're like in an anti-authority age. We're like, authority, this is awful. No, God's loving authority is always life-giving. So, so to go back to the hunting thing earlier, some of you, you're still tripping on that. Um, this is why we have laws against overhunting. Now, some of you are like, well, we shouldn't hunt at all. That's another debate for another time. Don't ask about that in the Q&A because you'll get me and Phil on different pages because I'm from California. He's from North Carolina. And our church is diverse and the Lord is big. But, but here's the point. Um, this is why, though we have more value than the animals, we're not cruel with animals. That it's actually our job to make sure that they flourish and can fill the earth and um, cannot uh, be too much in one place to wipe out another species. But also, this is why we have endangered species lifts and we care about things. So the idea of dominion, it's not oppressive. Not until sinner is the picture anyway. The idea of authority and rule and headship and leadership over the creation is always about giving life and causing the flourishing of everything else. That's the purpose that your life and my life was created for. Now, now here's the point I want to make about that. That right there should be the eradication of boredom. What Genesis is saying is that you and I were created for more than just to use and consume and go on with our lives, but that you and I were created to be life givers, to spread and cause the entire created order to flourish. This is why, as much as I can laugh at PETA sometimes, like I'm re like, really? Like, I know it says that God gave us all the plants here for food, but Genesis 9 says he gave us the animals too. So I'm going to eat a cheeseburger in peace, and you are not going to make me feel guilty about that. How dare you put a, a weight around my neck that the Lord has not. So I can at times say, like, how silly that is. But there is something about the image of God motivating someone that would care about the animals, that would have a conscience, that would say, we need to think about, are we doing this ethically? Are we causing them to flourish? Is there a better way we can do this that's better for the animals and for the humans? There's something about the image of God there. And, and I will also say this. This is what uh, should motivate Christians to care about the created order. Um, and again, if you hear something political in that, you're bringing it into the equation. What I'm saying on page one of the Bible is that we have been called to rule over the creation in such a way that it flourishes. And I know there's a lot of opinions about how do we care for the creation. And if we've not done a good job in the past, what should our response be to that? I'm not telling you what the response should be. I'm telling you this is where the value to care for the climate and the creation comes from. That we have been put here for a purpose. And, and, and look, I, I hope you're hearing some of these things. Those two things I just described, caring for animals and caring for the creation, you don't hear that talked about in church a lot. You hear that talked about at the gym, at the bar, you know, if you're a sinner and you drink. I'm just kidding. Um, you hear that talked about, like, at your neighborhood block party. But this should be our end with people, to be like, hey, you think that's valuable? I do too. Why do you think that's valuable? I'm not encouraging you to try to checkmate someone and to be like, ha, you're stealing from the Bible. You're plagiarizing a three and a half thousand year old book. I'm not encouraging that. I'm encouraging curiosity. Like, do you wonder where the instinct to care for animals or the planet comes from? Now, now, I would say, based on Scripture, it's because all humans have been made in the image of God, and so no matter how much we try to oppress that or pretend that our Creator's not real, that is in us, and so it finds ways of sneaking out. 
But like, are you ever curious to engage someone just to hear what's going on in their mind? How are they thinking about it? These are some grounds on which we should be able to relate no matter a person's faith background. And then finally, I will say, so this purpose relates to the animal kingdom. It relates to the, uh, the world and everything in it. Um, but it particularly, it has to relate to caring for where other image bearers are being treated less than human. I mean, if humanity is the pinnacle of creation, then we should not major in caring for the birds in the field and not caring about the images of the living God that he has filled this earth with. And so, yes, this doctrine motivates us to care about animals, about the planet, and particularly above all else, this should motivate us to speak up when other humans are being treated as less than. And again, I think this is where we this is where we can talk to our world today. Because our world believes in justice. We're just, the bend of sin in us has caused us to do that imperfectly. Um, but that's the beginning for a conversation point. Because we're looking at page one of the Bible here, folks. This is before sin enters the world. This is the happy picture. This is when someone cries out for justice. It's, it's an echo. They're remembering that this is what we're made for. We're made for a world where we cause everything to flourish. Yes, for the animals, yes, for the planet, but particularly for other image bearers. You and I were put here so that we would look at each other with all of our quirks and uniqueness about us and be like, man, God is so kind and good and creative. We are meant to do this for one another. And this is the picture you get for about a page or page and a half of the Bible, depending on your font size. But by the time you get to Genesis chapter 3, um, we will meet um, God's enemy. Um, and in Genesis chapter 3, there's a serpent that the New Testament tells us is Satan in the garden. How'd he get there? Ask about it in the Q&A. He's a created being. He's not co-eternal with the Lord, but he's a dangerous spiritual being. And he hates God. And he hates humans. You know why he hates us? Because we're icons of the living God. We remind him of the one that he hates. And so Satan worms his way into the garden, and he deceives our first parents. He deceives humanity into joining him in his rebellion against the Creator. So you get like a page and a half of very good and happiness. And then you get to Genesis chapter 3, and you get a marriage fight. You get siblings killing each other. You get guys bragging about murder. You get things that I don't even know how I'm going to stay from this stage, but I'm going to have to read it in the Bible as we get there. Pray for me. It's depraved. It's wicked. It's awful. And it all begins with breaking relationship with our Creator, that rather than partner with our Creator, in relationship to bring flourishing to the world. Our first parents, and don't be too hard on them, because you and I and every human that's ever lived has chosen to partner with God's enemy and to destroy God's good world. You might say, you don't know my story. I'm not trying to destroy anything. I'm not telling you that you intentionally thought you want to destroy something, but remember James chapter 3. If you've spoken harshly to another human, you've stolen their God-given dignity. And who do you think you are to say, I'm not bringing destruction into the world? The Bible disagrees. You are. You have. 
I do, I have, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And if you could get over your pride for a moment, there's good news that continues on to say, but are justified freely by the grace offered in Jesus Christ. And so I don't say this to condemn you, but you need to know that you're a human rights violator. You have, um, you've not valued the humanity of other people, You've treated other humans as less than, and in so doing, you've not only robbed them of their humanity, but you have dehumanized yourself because you were created to image your creator. And when you go around knocking his creation, you tell lies about what he's like. You look less and less like the person that your creator made you to be. And that's the bad news. That explains the world that we live in today. But the story does not end there. And if you can get over your pride for a moment to admit, maybe I have spoken harshly to another person. Maybe that is inconsistent with what I believe leads to flourishing. Maybe I'm a worse sinner than I think. Then here's the good news of the scriptures for you. God has not left us in our sin and Satan is not the most powerful figure in the story. That in the fullness of time, Jesus Christ, who according to Hebrews chapter 1, is the exact imprint of God's nature. The eternal image of God, who has always perfectly shown the created order, what the Father is like before there even was a creation. The one in whom and through whom everything was made. He becomes human to restore the image of God in broken humans like you and me. And by dying in our place for our sin, Jesus Christ removes the thing that stands between us and God for a relationship and a partnership. And by rising again, Jesus invites you and me that if you can get over your pride and trust what I've done for you, you can be citizens in my kingdom. Your sin is taken care of. You're my beloved child again. And you are not only a child of God, but you are a citizen of his kingdom, a disciple of Jesus who is learning day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit how to live into life in his kingdom and how to take those values that God has that we see in Jesus and image and show it to the world around us. See, Jesus came to restore our humanity again. He came to invite us into the kingdom so that you and I might be agents of reconciliation in a dark and broken world and say, though our sin is great, Jesus is greater still, and in him we can see what it means to be human again. And in him we can partner with God again and reconnect with our true purpose, which is to bring flourishing into the world. And yeah, it's going to be imperfect. Some of you are like, do you know church history? Churches have done some messed up stuff. Yeah, we just said we're all sinners. It is imperfect. It is from one degree of glory to another. But for those who trust in Jesus, our partnership with God is restored. And we can learn from one degree to another what it looks like to partner with God to cause this creation to flourish again instead of tearing it down all the time. And that's the invitation of Genesis. Partner with your creator and redeemer to show the world what he is like. Resist the urge of sin that you will find in you to use and abuse other humans this week. But instead, use everything that God has given you to show the world what his grace and his mercy and his love and justice are like. And I'm telling you, Christian or not, this is what the whole world wants people that will stand up and be architects for flourishing. And you can't do it apart from Christ. And so I'm going to pray for us. 
and we're going to take communion together to remember what Christ has done for us, um, that we might taste afresh and see that our God is good and he is worth giving our life and our love to. And as we see that, that we might go out into this world afresh, amazed at his love and imaging from one degree of glory to another the goodness with which our Savior has loved us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you are a happy God, that you created out of joy, not out of need, but out of grace and mercy and love and wanting to share what you have. Um, And God, though we have sinned against you, though we have uh, treated your images cheaply and not only sinned against our neighbor, but sinned against you in the process, and though you have Um, righteous anger for that. You don't turn a blind eye to us treating your images cheaply, but I thank you that you are a God whose mercy always triumphs over judgment. I thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to be bigger than our sin, to be bigger than anything that would keep us down, so so that we wouldn't have to pretend to be more than we are this morning. And so because that is true, um, Lord, I ask that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us honestly assess our lives. Would you help us, Christian or not, look honestly at our life and see where are we selling short the dignity of other people? Where are we living out of step with this doctrine that we love on page one of the Bible? Would you expose us this morning, not so that we might be condemned, but so that we might come to your table afresh and receive your grace. And remember that there's nothing that we can confess to you today that will surprise you or change your love for us. Would you make us a people that more and more value the dignity of all people and in so doing, find a purpose in this valley um, that brings life to this place in such a way that would show this entire valley which you are like. We love you. We ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.